Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. Each episode is a deep conversation with a carefully chosen peer about not just houses, but place. Yeah, of course we talk about houses and retrofits, but we also want to change the industry for the better, forever. Energy poverty, community engagement, industry disruption, societal responsibility, and climate change. It's all here and so much more. We're back with This Must Be the Place, your building science podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. My guest today is Gail Lawler. She's not only a trailblazer in the efficiency space, she is also a natural-born teacher who's in her element teaching in person or on a job site, and I've seen that for myself. She's worked in a variety of capacities the past four decades, including an air ceiling contractor, auditor, retailer, researcher, consultant, and, of course, trainer. It was actually a computer glitch in the 1980s that sent her on the energy efficiency path. So we'll find out about that and so much more in the next few minutes. Welcome to the podcast, Gail. It's so nice to see you. I can see you. Everybody else can't. (laughs) (laughs) It is wonderful to see you, Shauna, and to talk with you again. It's been too long. It has. This has been a real a real challenge. Usually we, we were roomies at spring training, but that hasn't happened now for three years. I know, and I do miss that. Uh, I miss that opportunity to get together with people and to to talk uh, to talk what other people don't even understand, you know, and to mm-hmm. and what others are doing around the country. It's a very exciting time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's kind of what we're trying to do with the podcast as well, is to get there's conversations between me and somebody like you today, obviously, um, but uh, to get more more stories out there, more more thoughts and feelings about what we're doing and how we're doing it. But I want to start off with, I didn't know about a computer glitch. What's that about? (laughs) Well, I uh, switched careers three times in university, and then I finally thought that I had figured out what I wanted to do from therapeutic recreation to outdoor recreation to environmental studies and did some um, work at Boyne River Outdoor Science School, and I thought, that's it. I want to be an outdoor ed teacher. I applied to Queens. They only take a few numbers, a few people, and they had to hand process my application, they said, because it was a little funny um, a problem with one of my courses. And they said I was a shoe in everything was a go, I was going to start in that September uh, in Teachers College. And they didn't hand process it. It went through yeah. that. And it kicked me out because one of my numbers was off on my uh, course codes. And I was devastated at the time because I thought that was... Imagine figured out my career. But uh, in the long run, uh, the universe was looking out for me, and that was not where I was meant to be. Um, I found out years later that outdoor ed teachers had to be rotated back into a classroom. I would have suffocated in a classroom. Um, (laughs) And so I knew that teaching was something that I was interested in, but that's not what I did initially. But just started off with talking to the general public and working with other people and sharing the you know energy efficiency story um, through a variety of different places, and then the teaching came later, and that's when I knew that I was meant to be working with contractors and with the general public. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that um, after you your career path got switched, <laughs> um, you started the conservation store, a retail yeah. outlet in Toronto. 
And that seems like it was really innovative for the time. We were way ahead of our time. And uh, Tex McLeod, who I know you've had on your podcast, mm-hmm. is involved in that uh, conservation store initiative as well um, through a company called um, Resource Integration Systems, which by chance was the same company that created the Blue Box for recycling. Um, oh, nice. And so there were a number of us. I was a part owner and the manager. And what an exciting time the 80s were. Um, I've often reminisced with all the folks from our era saying that the 80s was when everything was happening. It was a buzz. But mm-hmm. we were ahead of our time. People would come into the store, ask tons of questions about how to make their home energy efficient, and then go to Canadian Tire and try to find the same product for $5 instead of $7 with us. So, <laughs> it was a very hard <laughs> challenge, but it gave us the opportunity to do innovative workshops. We made um, energy efficiency window shades. That we did interior um, acrylic magnetic storm windows. We created radiator um um, insulating blocks behind all the old radiators. Yeah. So we were making all these amazing things and running air sealing crews uh, throughout Durham region and Toronto at the same time. So I feel very grateful to be part of that initial wave of, of work. And we were all learning um, step mm-hmm. by step. And there were people often asking, what's your degree? What did you do? It's like, I learned it on the ground. I learned it with some of the best uh, out there. And I have to give a shout out to Ed Lowens. Ed is still in the Ottawa area. He was um, probably my first person to really teach uh, teach me about indoor air quality. He had lots of allergies. And so he was um, a big partner in the conservation store. And we did a lot of indoor air quality work that was way ahead of its time back Mm -hmm. then. So that was 1983 to 1986. So I jumped into this world in 1991. So you were a few years ahead of me. Yeah, on and all I of that stuff. Graduating from university too. I was uh, 25 when I graduated from university. I took some time off and traveled Europe as mm-hmm. well. I just took my time uh, getting to where I was going. But uh, you know what? In the long, long run, it's uh, it, every stepping stone matters, and you have a lesson Absolutely. to learn. Absolutely. At every stepping stone, and you got lots of people to meet on each stepping stone, and you take all those lessons learned. I know that um, you're officially sort of kind of maybe <laughs> semi-retired. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I think your semi-retired is probably on par with other people's full-time employment. <laughs> is that a fair thing to say? Um, well, COVID, uh, threw me a bit of a punch. Um, I mm-hmm. do not do well online training. I have discovered that I need to be in person with people. I need to be on the ground running and I didn't have that. And so I shrunk through COVID mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. I am back at it. I had my first, uh, in-person class with the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinty two weeks ago. And what a thrill. I'm back up on the James Bay coast with Kosheshawan First Nation doing energy retrofits of houses next week. And, that's what fires my engines and uh, just watching people and, and being with people. But I decided that I would probably start to semi-retire. And there's a wonderful organization called Indigenous Clean Energy. And mm-hmm. since 2007, I've almost exclusively been working with First Nations communities in their clean energy projects, which includes conservation, not just. So can you say that again since 2007? Yeah, since yeah. 2007, I've been working almost exclusively with in First Nations communities. And Indigenous Clean Energy as a social enterprise came about about six years ago. And I have been involved with them pretty regularly. And I know that 
retirement 100% is not going to happen because the work they are doing is so phenomenal, so inspiring, and I get bits and pieces all the time handed to me from them, and I'm a mentor with youth, I'm a mentor with people who have been, who are trying to make clean energy projects work in their community, and to me, it's it's all about, we have to give back. You know, mm-hmm. if you spent 40 years in an industry, and we watched it grow from the beginning through to the end, it's our duty to give back, and I am, you know, for the mentorships, I'm paid an honorarium, and I'm happy with that. I'm happy to go into retirement with that kind of workload. So I feel that I will never be fully retired, but I did do a fun step towards retirement. I've always had Energy Matters cards, which is my company, right. and I had run out about a year ago, and I thought, hmm, what do I do? Do I make some new ones? I don't know what's happening. And I thought, you know, what I spend most of my time doing work-wise and in my personal life is connecting people to other people, connecting people to resources, connecting dots. And so I decided to make a new card that says, Gail Lawler, Connector of Dots. Nice. (laughs) I love it. I call that my retirement card because that eases me into retirement, but it also um allows me to continue doing what I want to do in my choice of, of work and ICE, Indigenous Clean Energy, is all about connecting the dots and nice. not reinventing wheels. And so I feel like I'm perfectly placed, you know, doing some odd jobs with them and doing mentorships with them. So nice. Excellent. So can you can you elaborate a little bit more on what what that whole big project is, the 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 ICE project? Yes, so it uh, formed, uh, as I said, six or seven years ago, and it was to assist communities who wanted to go ahead with solar and wind projects. And I first learned about them at a conference in Ottawa that CMHC was hosting, and I heard the um, uh, person who had created the, the social enterprise, Chris Henderson, speak. And I went up to him afterwards and said, can I buy you a beer? we need to talk about what clean energy really is because the byline under my company uh, signature is conservation is the first fuel. And mm-hmm. I have a hard time justifying production of new, of new electricity um, unless it's replacing diesel, of course, um, or natural gas. But we have to be reducing energy first and foremost, not always, 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 always. So he said, yes, it's in the works. It's it's uh, it's there. We had to start somewhere and let's continue the conversation. And so I was with them all um, for our first conference in two years um, in Ottawa last week Two yeah, last week. And. Oh, it was like being in a big warm hug for two days. <laughs> Everybody nice. there is inspiring. They are motivated. They are making big change. And what I got out of that conference was the the road and the pathway to climate change mitigation and how we are going to pull ourselves up out of the mire because it's going to be a nasty future. And I call it climate chaos now. I think we're going to be led by the First Nations communities. The Indigenous communities are leading the way. There is no doubt in my mind. They are relying on their traditional knowledge and their understanding of the earth and their connection to the land. And I want to be on their wagon. I want to be Mm -hmm. with them um, because they are making real change. And I'm very excited to be part of that. So I... I feel like that enterprise, social enterprise, is going to be one of the big catalysts that will make 
major change. And the cool thing is, is they're doing it community by community, and they're creating templates so that everybody doesn't have to recreate everything because that's what's been happening all across the country for mm-hmm. mainstream and indigenous. Everybody thinks that their little corner of the world needs its own code. It needs its own manual to do work on houses and to do anything. And it's like, no, the physics are the same in Nova Scotia as Ontario as Nunavut as yeah. the territories. The physics um, lessons don't change. And we need to create material that allows communities to integrate and move on clean energy projects, whether it be conservation or clean energy production of electricity um, in a fast and efficient way, because we don't have a lot of time. Uh That's why I can't really fully retire. And I know I can't just retire and say, that's it. I've given up on the world. We owe too much to our future generations to, to do that. So definitely I need to uh, continue giving back and working on the connecting of dots to make all of that happen. I'm with you. I knew you would. Let's go. (laughs) Giddy up. It's always been like-minded that way, Shauna, and that's what I've always admired uh, about you is that, uh, and you make things happen in a big way. So that's, uh, yeah, it's a... Well, thank you. We're trailblazers uh, in that way of, of needing to. We all have a different path that we are taking, and all those paths are leading, hopefully, to to bigger and better things that mm-hmm. will lead us mm-hmm. out of. It's not going to lead us out of climate chaos. We are going to have climate chaos no matter what, but we need to soften the blow and to have some kind of future. Right. You know, one of the things that that I was I've been thinking of as I've been putting together this season of the podcast where we've been looking at you know, the history of, of, you know, who's been in the business for, you know, longish time. And really, I said this in the introductory essay, I think that we we were introduced by three different men in three different segments of one event way back. Like, I don't even remember how we met. (laughs) But it's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You got to meet Gail because she's the other woman yeah. in this <laughs> thousand person conference. I'm like, oh, great. We neither of us have penises, so we should meet. <laughs> it's like, I'm not quite sure that that logic holds, but thank you. And I'm thankful to them. I think it was, it was, it was Tex and Gord and possibly Oliver. I yeah. think, and then they were, we were at some event, national event, and we, and it might have even been, we the retrofit conference that CMHC put together. Oh, probably. I've been to so many. I would say that, uh, yeah, because Gordon and I often uh, reminisce that he and I started at the exact same time. We're the exact same age, and uh, we were both um, running kind of parallel paths. And uh, and Tex was there. I met Tex first. That's who I uh, started mm-hmm. with. And uh, and Tex was an R2000 builder and was teaching the R2000 courses. So he was my first contact into the industry. And as you said in the introduction, I started as an air ceiling contractor because I was at a loss after I got kicked out of Queens. I was like, what do I do now? And at, in those days, like the gray hair talk of uh, you go to the <laughs> unemployment office and it wasn't a computer. You look up on a bulletin board to find where the jobs were. And the job I saw was um, the chip grant. Canadian Home Improvement Grant. Okay. And you know, they were doing air sealing and insulating um, 
in houses, in seniors' homes, and in community buildings. And I thought, well, I did my fourth-year thesis in environmental studies on the wise use of energy for grade 7 and 8 for the Kitchener-Waterloo um, School Board. I know what energy is about. I know what about the wise use of energy. And I know a hammer from a two-by-four, so I can do this. And I literally sat down and memorized the Canadian General Standards Board uh, binder that you had to learn to go and write the exam to become a senior estimator for the CHIP grant. The CHIP grant, as we learned hence, was probably one of the worst things that happened to our industry because there was no vetting. There was, you mm-hmm. had to pass this one test, but I found out later that probably anybody could have passed it uh, who had any contracting background. And there was nobody to do third-party follow-up. There were no uh, registered energy advisors at that time. So nobody was following up to see if the contractors who said they were insulating your attic or doing the air sealing actually did the work. And uh, Right, and no way of benchmarking. No benchmarking. Like where you started, where you, where you finished in terms of That's lower right. doors. And so yeah. what we ended up having was lots of houses with problems. So my other key person that was part of my beginning was Tony Woods. Mm-hmm. Woods, um, I always said that Tony Woods was my uh, building envelope uh, guru and Gord Cook. I've always given credit to being my HVAC guru. Um, so Tony Woods from Canna Air Leakage, unfortunately, he's now passed and has been gone quite some time. But his company, Canam Air Leakage, was um, instrumental in moving forward the whole air sealing industry and the that whole understanding of uh, build it tight. And then, of course, Gord's side was the ventilated right. But they worked predominantly in commercial, but they also had a residential side. But, um, you know, it was Tony that really um, inspired me, and he was part of my mentorship when I had the conservation store. They were also um, building their own weather stripping, which is now called Zero Draft. And they mm-hmm. were and we were the first place to retail it. And so... Being on those leading edges, and Zero Draft is still the best. Now, I know there's other names for it, um, uh, but that weather stripping for doors is what is inserted into the kerf, into the uh, door frame. So most new doors have that particular material built right into them, and that was from way back in the early 80s or maybe even the late 70s. So that we were selling that weather stripping in the early 80s, and it's still on the market today, and it's still considered to be the best and most effective because it's simple and effective it is like amazing. Mm-hmm. The one thing that really still is so disheartening is when you talk about the house works as a system or how does air, heat, and moisture flow. And those are the things that I love to talk about the most um, in a training perspective and seeing light bulbs go off in the classroom mm-hmm. and get it. And it's like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. Um, when you talk to people and they go, the house is a what? Oh, no, no, heat rises. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about any of that stuff. You know, like that's just all, you know, it's gibberish. And it's not. And that we are still 35, almost 40 years down the road, still talking to contractors who haven't got a clue how the house works as a system and that if something's out of whack, that's why you have indoor air quality problems. That's why there can be mold problems, health issues. Um, degradation of the building issues and not being able to explain those things in their own terms, but just thinking that they're just, that is a given. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially in a First Nations context, that it's a given that your house is going to rot before 20 years of age and that it needs to be rebuilt. Um, that shouldn't be. And I give 
huge credit to, as I said before, First Nations communities are taking net zero energy courses. They are, they are learning the building science. They are wanting to build to passive house or net zero standard now, and they want to renovate to those standards. And, you know, they are going to, as I said, lead the way past mm-hmm. all of the archaic, old school contractors who have a pickup truck and a ladder and a hammer and just aren't putting their bums in seats for learning what's changed and how we are doing things differently. Right. I mean, I've, I've basically said, you know, we're not building barns anymore. We have to do, we have to have a whole industry. The whole ecosystem has to have this. This is basic understanding. Even before, if you're going to trade school, as far as I'm concerned, even before you learn how to use any tool, you should have this information in your head. Yeah. And you know what? It's still not there. I know. It's still not there. Um, and it's very sad. And I always thought that the architects were one of the ones that were the farthest behind. And then I heard Ed Mazira. That's how you say his name. Um, he's an Mazaria. Mazaria, thank you. Ed, Ed Mazaria speak um, about his uh, 2030 challenge. Yeah, but he's very special. And that's. But, but, but here, here's what he's done. He has changed the architecture curriculum starting in the U.S., now in Canada, and around the world. Because I know lots of young people who've gone into architecture, and they haven't got a clue about mm-hmm. building sciences. They don't understand. It's all about make it look pretty, make it stand up in a you know a windstorm. But the energy efficiency side is not something yeah. that they are learning in any kind of detail. There will be a few minutes spent on it somewhere, but he is changing that curriculum to... That's good because it's about time. So I feel like there's all these little pockets and little spaces, right, where people have been um, trailblazers in their own right and in their own area. Because you're right, it's going to take all of those trails coming together for a perfect Mm -hmm. storm. Because we're heading to a perfect storm. We need to be ready. And, you know, all of the net zero energy and the uh, National Building Code goals to be net zero and 2030 and now 2050, whatever it might be. It's like, okay, but it's going to take a lot of work to get there, a lot of coordination. And I am, I am excited. I am seeing big change. And I, I do feel good about the industry is finally moving in the right direction. Faster. Yeah, I think we've, we've got a ton, of, a ton of work to do on retrofit, though. Right? New construction. Yeah, I mean, and my too. Easy. Retrofit is the challenging issue for mm-hmm. sure. So um, I, I am encouraged by Federation of Canadian Municipalities has funded some pilot projects. I believe there's mm-hmm. one in Ottawa. The one I'm working with is in Kingston, and Durham Region is doing one, and Toronto has one. And it's all focused on retrofit. All yeah, and we've got, I'm working on one here too. Very good. So that, to me, is very exciting that there's some movement afoot. And uh, um, I like the one in Kingston. They are doing um, up to a $40,000 loan for your renovation. And you can put it on your um, income tax. Or not income tax. Your tax. Yeah. And so it it moves with the house, if the house is sold. So no longer can you say, I can't justify doing that work because I'm not going to live here longer than five years. That is brilliant, and that we've been yeah. trying. That you and I went to the city of Toronto to pitch that, gosh, twenty years ago, and they were interested, and and, and everything else, and, and talking about it through the um, BPI program that you and I worked on, tried to work on, 
And so I feel like even though we've attempted many different ways and we've hit roadblocks, things are starting to, to move. I, I always have to be honest. Yeah, I, think, I think our biggest roadblock is always, I mean, there's a, there's a couple, but the biggest one for renovations especially is the financing part of it. You know, if especially if you're in a place where you are, if you are unable to do the work on your own in terms of afford it, um, and then you have grant programs or loan programs, you know, you're still not making it easy for people to get in, especially if they have to prove, um, well, like, for example, the Greener Homes Grant, the $5,000 grant, you have to pay for the money, you, or, sorry, you have to pay for the work up front, and then you get reimbursed, which takes a whole bunch of people out of that equation because they don't have the five grand to put towards any work. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll tip that on its head, and I, I grant you there are people who, you know, can't do the work because they can't upfront the cost, but people don't even hesitate to put a pool in a hot tub. Um, yes. things, but they still need to be incentivized, incentivized to, to do energy efficiency work to save our future for their own children. I have a hard time with that. Like, invest, mm-hmm. invest in the stuff that's really going to matter for your future, but it's invisible. Energy. It's invisible and it's not, it's not sexy. It's just no. not sexy, right? I mean, I, you know, I talk about how insulation is really sexy all the time. <laughs> People are like, you're really weird. <laughs> Blood, you know, and, uh, um, but, it, it is it is challenging to get people to make those priorities. And so here's a personal example. I have to say this has just all happened in the last few days, and I'm in the midst of this right now. Uh, my heating system for my 1963 side split, um, which we've done a lot of retrofit work to the structure, but it's nowhere near, um, you know, like a new new build even to anything uh, net zero, anywhere close to that, but it's still pretty good. Um, my condensing water heater died on Thursday night. And it heats our in-floor heating and it heats our house and it provides the hot water for our personal needs. So that's a big deal. And we've uh-huh. always fixed them and fixed it. And this time uh, someone came and said, it's not fixable. You need a new one, $10,000 to install a new condensing water heater. And this system is 20 years old that I have. And I said, well, you know, it's really unfortunate that it happened right now because I was right starting to think I need to do what I tell everybody else. I need to uh, be planning ahead. So I had already started the planning process of switching my gas heating system to a heat pump. And I wanted to um, have that all in place for September, so to be making this whole switch over. And so my Polaris condensing water heater dying has accelerated everything for me. I have spent endless hours on the phone with all different people. Someone came out Friday night who is from the dinosaur era of the HVAC world. The only person I could get who I thought could come and maybe fix it. I thought maybe it was just an igniter. So you could just limp along till September. That's right. And when I told him that I was planning to switch out to a heat pump water heater and a heat pump system for air conditioning and heating, he said I was the silliest girl in the world and to get my head out of the sky in the clouds because that's a ridiculous system. Heat pumps um, do not work. And he went on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you need to switch to electric, go to an electric furnace and let's just put in a regular gas water heater. I cry <laughs> and I thought, how much energy and effort do I put into educating you? I don't think you, and he, he very 
boldly said, as I am, you know, I have heard this my entire career. I've been 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, whatever in the industry. And, uh, but he's never sat in on any type of training other mm-hmm. than his ticket and his license to do that work. So immediately get on the phone to people like Gord Cook and he puts me in contact with other people and we're working on different scenarios and how can this all work? And, and I realized, uh, just in a conversation today, that I need to, my panel may need to be changed to accommodate mm-hmm. a heat pump water heater and for the other heat pump. And we blithely say in the industry, this is what we should all be moving to. But there are a lot of glitches, a lot of little jumps and humps. And when you said it's not easy for the money side, the technology mm-hmm. side is not easy. And we've been talking heat pump water heaters for quite a few years, but they are not that readily available. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Can they be installed easily into your existing water heater space? Um, Knowing that you need to put a a separate 30-amp service into your electrical panel can be a huge stumbling block. And so if you are changing things up in an emergency situation, there is no way in a retrofit world that we are going to move people towards a better system. Um, if, um, If there are those stumbling blocks in the way, you know, like the 30 amp service requirements. Mm -hmm. I just read a really, uh, just released, um, it's a paper report out of BC, out of Vancouver specifically, and it is specifically about how do we get past this hurdle in terms of electrification of housing um, and how do, you know, what it's super good. I'm not sure if it's publicly available yet, but I'll let you know and we'll put it on the, um, on the website or yeah, on the, on the website with this episode as well, but it's exactly, you know, it's not, it's all the things you just spoke about. It's like, well, there's not anybody who's going to do it. Um, you get somebody who comes in and says, no, do what we know. Um, or you get people who say, yes, I'll show up. And then they just ghost. Yeah. They never show up. And so, the the impetus to do it is also unusual. It has very little to do with the people who are getting heat pumps in Vancouver in this survey that was done are not the people who are sort of, you know, rabid environmentalists. You know who's doing it? It's the people who like to live large because it's a it's a it's a bragging point. Mm. That's often been the learning, you know, in that adoption mm-hmm. curve. It's always been those yeah. who who are willing to take that chance and, and want something to brag about. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just really interesting to me because we don't have cheap natural gas here in Atlantic Canada, certainly not in Nova Scotia. And heat pumps are really taken off because the other option is strip electric or an oil furnace slash or a boiler. And either one of those things means that you have higher insurance um, premiums because of the on-site oil tank. And if you have an older house that has an oil tank, um, you are could be prone to having an environmental assessment if if you're if you're selling your house and the buyer goes, mm, I really don't know, or if the home inspector says, Oh, there's a you know, there's been some spillage here. Yes. So people are jumping off oil and into heat pumps. So we have pretty good, you know, per capita, we have a pretty good uptake on that. Um, it doesn't mean that they're any better than the gas guys who come in, basically put their thumb in the air and say, ah, yeah, it'll be, uh, <laughs> oh, you had 120 
6,000 BTUs on your last one. Well, just stick another one like, just like that in. It's fine. You know, it's like, um, I don't know if you ever met Mike Rogers. He was out of the States. Um, he was brilliant. He had this whole riff that he did um, that was on Billy and the Box Changers, talking about people coming in and just changing out furnaces for the same, you know, not doing any kind of of heat heat calculation or anything. Right. It was quite it was quite delightful. <laughs> I don't know if you read the article recently that um the province of Quebec, the state of New York, uh Vermont, um Washington State, Oregon have all passed um laws that if you have an oil uh furnace in Quebec uh specifically, you and it dies, you cannot replace it with another oil furnace. You must replace replace it with um, um, a heat pump, um, and I think in another year's time, natural gas furnaces will uh, follow the same route. Um, mm-hmm. New York State and started this whole endeavor, and yeah. that to me is very exciting because um, we we do need as much as we want to think that uh, the people can make the change when they have the knowledge, you know, and I. Community-based social marketing, all of that element has been a huge part of my career of, you know, give people the knowledge, they'll make the right decisions. And uh, and it's true, they will. And they can be the groundswell. But we need government um, uptake on making change and making rules. And, you know, people get upset when, like, mid efficient gas furnaces were banned in Canada how many decades ago. But that was, mm-hmm. that was the stimulus we needed. We need governments to take broad steps and and big movements to make change that will affect our future and without that it can take decades to change attitudes that will lead to action and community-based social marketing is all about change the action and the attitude will change and the opinion will change later when the actions change so i'm very much for we need more government programming that says this is like like quebec has done we need the same thing, saying we need to be getting off gas. We need to be getting off fossil fuels. And in Ontario, gas is extremely cheap. Yeah. Um, it is really, really super hard to, 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 justify that. to justify anything, not even going to a heat pump. It's really hard to justify doing any envelope work. That's right. Very, very Because good. the envelope work is going to cost more than your energy savings. Because the because gas is so inexpensive. Yes. So back to what one of the things that Tony Woods taught me was it's not about the energy savings because mm-hmm. in most of my all of my career the cost of gas and electricity and oil has been relatively inexpensive across the country. You know, in in pockets it's certainly more expensive in certain areas. And he was the one who always said from the very beginning, it's about comfort and health. And health is always trumps everything. So, mm-hmm. um, so I always say that that you know we we want to make houses that are um, are healthy, safe, comfortable, durable, and energy efficient. Right. I always credit Tony Woods for that statement. I don't know if it's his or not, but that's where I first learned that order of priority, and still tout it today. And that's my priority discussion point in all training. Is that because uh, if you Look after the energy efficiency first and foremost. You'll end up with a house that's not healthy and yeah. safe for people to live in. You have to look after the occupants. Look after the structure. And if you look after the health, safety, comfort, and durability, 
then you'll automatically have an energy efficient house. You know that right. anybody, yeah. but getting that across. And when you have grants and, and sometimes I think grants are actually a problem because people wait for the grants to make action, to take action. Yes. And they don't feel we have trained people that energy efficiency work is not viable unless you have a grant to um, offset some of the costs. Mm-hmm. I think we've done ourselves a disservice. And in fact, I think I devalued that and devalued, you know, the, the role of an energy advisor by having their work subsidized so that now when someone says, what do you mean it costs $500 to get a, an, an energy advisor in? Well, that's the actual cost to, you know, for that work to be done. But here in Nova Scotia, we're subs- it's subsidized and it's 100 bucks to the consumer, which, you know, I mean, somebody's going to have to pay that. And if that's what continually happens, that's fine. But the value, if they, ta- if they pull that, that incentive away or that sub- subsidy away, then you have really done. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's going to topple like a house of cards. Yeah, have we not seen that in my 40 yeah. years? Like the, you know, I, I used to be an energy advisor way back when, and and it rises and falls with the whim of yeah. the government programs, and and their value as a contribution to um, energy efficiency, good advice, and understanding um, what are the priorities for your home, and what's going to give you the best bang for your buck, and what's going to give you the best health, and and uh, and doing things in the right order, they are devalued all the time, and yeah. that. Very, very frustrating. Um, and I, I'm actually quite happy that they have become, um, they're registered energy advisors now. They've got a lot more, um, credibility behind them. And with the net zero energy and, and passive house, their, their role has risen again. Well, and, and the, and the step code, the energy step code in BC and the tiered step code and anything to do when you, as soon as you start on a performance path, the easiest way yeah. To make that first performance path is to use an EA as opposed to going back to first principles with an engineer or, you know, other other options. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're we're in a place where we're now we're getting past the voluntary, you know, oh, well, R2000 was a voluntary standard and being involved with the inner guide for houses rating system is all, you know, voluntary. You're paying for it. It's voluntary. Now we're getting to the place where it's like if you want to have like uh, step three of the BC energy code is basically a requirement for a performance-based path for com- compliance, which means that you have to have a blower door on the house and you have to have an energy model. Yes. So that's a big game changer right there. You know how the blower door pre and post came about? Tell me. Tex McLeod and Gord Cook and I had a contract with um, CMHC. Um, and Enercan, and it was maybe it was with Enercan, Enercan, sorry, Enercan, and CMHC was involved, and they wanted to introduce the Energuide, um, grant, the last, the very first Energuide uh, grant program, and they did not know how they could do it to avoid the pitfalls of the chip grant that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. They knew that there had to be something, and so um, doing training, as you well know, for the energy contractors. And the guys doing the work to the homes was the role and, and the, the, the route that they wanted to take. They wanted to certify the contractors doing the work. 
But that was proving, as we know from trying to get DPI started in Canada, was going to be a very, very difficult and long path to take. So they asked us to hold a think tank. And so we brought together all of the best of the best in Toronto, and they brought them in from all over the country and sat down for a day and did a big think tank about how do we introduce yet another or our second, it was actually not a yet another, a second uh, energy efficiency federal program that's going to give grant money to people and make sure we don't run into the same problems we did with the CHIP grant. And it was a fantastic day. So the three of us facilitated that event. And in the end, we came out with a pre and post energy audit is what's needed. Nice. We don't have time to wait um, for uh, training to happen and to have contractors go through a portal and only those contractors can do the work. And we were trying to figure out how we could speed that process along. And uh, we recognized that that time frame was just too long and right. things needed to be done quickly. And so the energy auditors were, was the answer and a pre and post because you're third party. And I've often and thought back to that workshop day and uh, it was a really good brainstorming session of all the brains in our industry saying, you know, we got to rely on these third party people. And so to me, they are the cornerstone. They got put under the bus, you know, in several times because <laughs> they come and go at the whim of uh, government programs. But I, I truly hope that those who are more involved in REAs, that will be their give back. Uh -huh. The industry is how do you support and promote and make sure that uh, registered energy advisors becomes a very important career choice. And I recommend right. young people who are looking for a career that they look at becoming an energy advisor. If you have any interest at all and have any background or any any anything at all that will help you launch yourself that way, to me that's one of the kingpin positions to. Yeah, it certainly make, is. Yeah, it's going to make. Yeah instrumental change for all the programming to work and to give consumers the confidence, which is what you and I were trying to do with BPI. Because when the consumer doesn't have confidence, you can have all the programs you want in the world, but if they can't trust that the contract is going to do right by them and that they can't trust that they are going to understand what they're doing and they might make more issues out of when they start working on your house, it's all lost. So mm -hmm. consumer confidence to me, is, you know, a key element of how do we succeed in the retrofit world in existing housing. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to say that I am very proud that I was one of the very first EAs in the country piloting that with Terry Waters. Um, and and it, it, it was a beautiful, um, you know, outgrowth, obvious outgrowth, really, uh, from the R2000 work I was doing, I was doing it for new houses, and then they, we did, we piloted the end guide for existing houses, and I was like, oh, this makes so much sense, you know. And then, I mean, I don't know how many I, I lost count of how many blower door tests I did on existing houses. <laughs> I mean, it was a few thousand, and and yeah, I mean that's what we're you know with Blue House Energy, it's our, a big focus is on getting. The training into people. Yes, that's right. And you've got a you've got a niche market in being able to do it online. And I'm so very proud of the work that you have done in that area to uh, to move people to training in and meeting them in their own space. Mm -hmm. Because it's extremely mm -hmm. difficult. We've spoken about this for years. How do you get bums and seats in a training course? People can't afford to take the time off. 
um, unless someone's paying them to be there. And most yep. most of the guys that we're talking about in the retrofit world, they're self-employed. Yep. No one's paying them to be in a training room. And, you know, trying to herd the cats, as we often said, as uh, renovation contractors, herding them uh, for training is going to be very difficult. So, you know, it's that combination of, you know, consumers need to trust you, so you need to take some training. Government needs to make some really strong rules and draw some hard lines in the sand and say, from this point forward, this is how we're going to do things. And if you want to be a contractor or working in this field, you need to fully understand how to do that so you don't create more problems by trying to solve the initial ones. And, uh, and, and the, you know, I think the public has become more savvy. They They can research and google and they can figure things out and they know better the questions they need to ask and uh but there's still so much chaff to 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 run through and then you know i i, I still see as i'm continue to do research and stuff that there are you can go down rabbit holes on sites that you know the, the where we're still dealing with friggin' bubble wrap yeah <laughs> you know, well, like I, I trot out my blog article on that every two years and go, like I wrote this in, I can't even remember, like I wrote this in 2001. Why am I still talking about this? It's in, you know, like that piece is is, is crazy making. I want I want to ask you a question. You know, we're talking there's two the two of us, and for for many 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 years we were one of very many very few people in the room who wasn't a man. Do you, what's your take on women in the industry these days? Um, well, in the indigenous uh, world, the women uh, participation is huge. And cool. I am very, very proud. The Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte have a women in trades program. And they nice. are one of several communities in the whole south uh, east corner of Ontario, um, encouraging women in trades. And they are building tiny houses to net zero energy standards. Uh, they're taking their Net Zero Energy course with Andy Oding um, on July 12th, and I'm very excited for them to be moving forward. And they've inspired um, someone that I'm mentoring out of uh, Manitoba. And uh, so Dakota Marsden, she will be in on that course. And uh, I'm I'm thrilled by women are inspired by other women. Mm-hmm. And I see that growth happening bit by bit by bit, and it's kind of percolating under the surface still, I think. But yeah. it, going to, it, it is exploding, and I am seeing more and more women involved. And it doesn't have to be, you know, wearing uh, work boots and a hard hat. There are so many different roles to play, um, and I think we have to get past that. You know, women in trades is only about the, you know, climbing the ladder. Mm-hmm. There's lots of other elements and aspects. There's planning. There's design. There's there's policy making. Um, there's all of those things are play a big role as well. And so yeah. we have to expand what the horizons are for those career choices. I think there's also there's there's a there's there's a missing element in there too because there are more women in um you know admin management design and most, you know, I'm gonna say this is probably this is a very rough guesstimate, but I think that we're moving we're closing in on like um engineering programs being almost 50-50 split, which is yes. fantastic. Women in the field is important, but you know who's missing and who's super important? Women bosses. Mm. If you don't have, because because there's no there's no way to change the culture of the industry unless the people calling the shots. It's interesting. Yes, okay. are are able to um, 
to see that there needs to be a change because right now um, there's not a lot of change that needs to be happened because we're just doing business as usual. We run off our feet. There's not enough people in the industry. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of compounding factors there. And as soon as we get other women, uh, women in the field, women at the design admin, that area, and then bosses of small companies, right? Right. Entrepreneurs, that's where we get a major shift in how the whole industry works. That's, that's my theory. Yes. I'm, and I'm going to put it into I'm going to put it into practice. <laughs> Good. Um, you know what? And I think we really need to bring trades back to the high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, introducing our youth to trades, um, and you know, I think our loss and our reduction in in uh, employable, employable people in the trades is because we are not introducing them to plumbing, electrical, carpentry, you know, and giving them a chance to see if that is a career choice for them. Mm-hmm. I did remember the fleeting moment that went out of my head. And brought it back because it is a key point that I always like to share. And it's that whole aspect that I think our industry is one of the few that always assumes that the consumer has to be as knowledgeable as we are. When I go to the dentist, when I go to the car mechanics, when I go to uh, a bike shop, wherever I go, I expect and believe that the person I'm taking my car to, my bike to, um, my dental work to, that they have the knowledge. They have degrees and licenses. licenses. And And registrations, and we don't. And we don't. And that's our, yeah, and so that was our (laughs) whole EPI thing, building performance, you know, our whole issue around that. Because this belief that consumers need to do all this research and to be on top of the game and be training the contractors that they're working with, that's nonsense. I, I don't know. I'm not an accountant. I can't do an accountant. Uh-huh. I have to trust my accountant can do it. But you're absolutely right. They have degrees. They are trained for their job. Anybody can do contracting, and that's our biggest problem. And so it comes back to that whole trades in the classroom, um, yep. putting people through to people taking college courses in trades, making sure the college courses are keeping up with the – um, you know, the stepped codes and understanding and, and introducing them to um, the building sciences and not just teaching them how to hold the hammer, but uh-huh. why, they're, why they're building in a certain way and how they can make it better. So there's still a lot of missing gaps and, and cracks. Um, I, I still feel very honored to have been part of this amazing industry. However, I got here. <laughs> stones. I am grateful for that time i still remember though when you were saying you know the few women in the field a certain someone saying that i didn't belong at the front of the classroom because i hadn't built a house myself and my answer back was i don't need to get in the water to teach you to swim and so if we're talking about women getting into the workplace um, and this comes down to housing managers as well for First Nations. Everybody thinks a housing manager has to be a retired carpenter. Oh. No. Mm-hmm. The person orchestrating and, and, and leading the way does not need to have built the house. Mm-hmm. They can have all the knowledge and the understanding, and they trust their workers to build it. Right. But there needs to be more people um, at that design stage and that policy and management stage who truly understand the building science and can watch and, and make sure that the work is being done um, to the best uh, aspect possible for meeting net zero energy uh, requirements or passive house. 
So to me, there's rules there for women. You don't have to be, you don't have to have had three generations of carpentry in your background. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's not going to be many people. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not many people anymore, and it's not relevant, you know. HVAC yeah. in particular, I think, you know, they became HVAC because their father was an HVAC and their grandfather before them. They, the HVAC company runs through. They do have licenses and tickets that they have to have and yada, yada. But if they're not keeping up with new technology, and I hearken back to my call on of my HVAC contractor who I spoke with this morning saying I was a fool to be doing what I'm doing and he has no idea my background. So I just let it slide and thought, wow, no wonder we're not making real change because we have people like you who have not sat in any type of training. You've just, you get a, a bone in your body that says, I don't like heat pumps. I don't like this. I don't like that. And you have one incident happen that causes you to believe that they're not accurate. And he said to me also, if you put in too much high technology stuff, there's no one to fix it. Well, just because he can't fix it doesn't mean that that's true. (laughs) So if you can't fix it, then where's the training course at the college level to repair a heat pump water heater? Mm -hmm. Where is that training? Colleges are fantastic (laughs) for meeting uh, needs um, and sure. being to, uh, um, you know, jump right in and start teaching courses to meet the needs of the industry and the society. Mm-hmm. So this this whole water heater issue with just me alone in my house and <laughs> thinking I could magnify this multiple times and see that this is a huge part of our issue. Well, and just, yeah, I mean, just think about if you hadn't had Gord Cook to call on, you're, there, there's your stopping point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and you know, all the other all my other folks would have called me. <laughs> you know, and just <laughs> happen and I would have been the one thinking, you know, at least Gord, because he was third party to it all, was thinking straight and you know, and it's like yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense, Gord. You know, thanks for bringing me up. But but you're right, we we can't you know, the Gord Cooks and the Tex McClouds and you know, and myself and yourself, like we're heading the other direction <laughs> in history and uh we need to bring up a lot more young people who have that confidence and that background and understanding. Um, uh, pretty well, good. it sounds like it sounds like you're doing a pretty good job with the folks you're working with. Uh, yeah, I'm going being, being available for them. The the mentorship is is I I'm very very pleased, and most of my mentorships are with women, and that's making very cool me as well. So I have two questions to wrap up our conversation today. I ask them of pretty much everybody. Some people don't know how to answer them, but I know you do. What's your all-time favorite, nerdy, delightful thing about building science? Oh, oh my. I could be really clever about this, but I'm golly. Wow, well, did I stump you? No. Here, <laughs> I'm going I'm to say this is when I'm teaching a course – I say, this is my absolute favorite slide. And so I'm going to make this my nerdy answer. And it's the NRC study of air barriers versus vapor barriers. Mm. And so we have, you know, square, two square foot pieces of drywall coated with two coats of oil-based paint, measuring the amount of moisture that travels through by diffusion or by air leakage through a two-by-two-centimeter hole. That study, I love to use that to say, this put our industry on its head. Like, mm-hmm, we, it, mm-hmm. with everything we thought about, and when I hear people talking about vapor barriers, vapor barriers, vapor barriers, and it's like, I want you to eliminate that word out of your mm-hmm. 
and you need to start talking about air barriers and you need to talk about continuous air barriers and this is why and so that study and it's just one little tiny study over one winter heating season in ottawa but it is kind of that pinnacle point where i get a aha in the audience mm-hmm. and people start to see the significance of the continuous air barrier from that one study. And then I followed up with a couple of slides of here's what it looks like behind electrical outlet um, after seven years or after this number of years. And that to me is my nerdy little science moment of because um, I, I like to see the light go on in people's eyes. And I, when I was in Ottawa last week with the Indigenous Clean Energy Group, I had several people come up to me and say, you know, you gave me some building science training and it was pretty minor stuff because it was, you know, just to introduce them to the concept. And can I rattle off some of the lines that I remember? Build tight, ventilate right, you know, uh, <laughs> nice. the cold. and like they're just like slinging all these things at me at the dinner table. And it's like, wow, that is so cool that things resonate with people and that they're putting them into practice. And even if I only spent a couple of hours with them to introduce them to the concepts of building science, it's uh it's very exciting when they remember it and it and it sticks with them. But I nice. have to say that NRC study of air vapor barriers versus vapor barriers is probably my nerdy moment. Excellent. Next question. What's the building science BS that drives you crazy? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think you're, you're talking about your 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 water heater <laughs> guy. I think that's probably it. Probably coming to mind. Um, you know, I, I, the the BS of uh, Builders, contractors, renovators, any of those guys, and it, hear me say it, guys, mm-hmm. um, it's the that white hair um, belief that I have white hair. I've been in the industry X number of years. I know better than you do, and I am not going to believe what you're saying because I don't believe the science because I don't mm-hmm. trust the science and it doesn't. You know, and but then I do love it when you when you do meet some gray-haired uh, guys who say, you know, I get it, I understand this, it's fantastic, and uh, I can see the difference because there certainly are lots of them. But I would say it's that white hair syndrome of, um, you know, I've been in this industry for 40 years, and this is the way we've always done Don't it. Don't tell me what to do, little lady. What to do, little lady. I always say <laughs> throughout all my training, the first few words out of my mouth were the most important. Um, I had to start off with a bang, um, and I had to make sure that I captured their attention with something that they could identify with. And if I didn't do that, then I was just a little lady standing at the front of the room, and what value did I have? Um, I'm really grateful for all the practical experience that I do have under my belt. Um, I haven't built a house, but I've done a lot of renovating, and all the air sealing work that I've done. Uh and the insulating, and I've crawled through my share of attics and crawl spaces, and uh, I have been in and out on every side of a caulking gun and and uh, weather stripping and insulation. So I I I know where my limitations are. I know where my expertise is, and I don't try to move beyond those. Um, and I try to always expand my knowledge. But that BS of this is the way we've always done it. I don't see any other reason why we should do it any other way. Isn't there a song like that? Um, there should be. If there's not. <laughs> It's a Harry Chapin song, I think, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> green leaves are green, red flowers are red, no need to see them any other way than the way they've always been seen or something like that. And that's that's the BS of contractors and renovators 
guys who won't come to the table and see that we have a climate crisis, climate chaos on our doorstep, and that they are a major part of making that major change and that Mm -hmm. some kind of future. And it's not about the money. It has to be about the comfort and the health of the people. And the comfort and the health of the people is related to climate change, Um, not just their internal house. And we always think of, you know, comfort and health being inside your home and it's comfortable and healthier. It's the comfort and health of the entire planet. And yeah, because it doesn't matter what you've got in the house or if, you, yeah. if everything else around you is burning up and there's no food. So, yeah, we'll yeah. close that. And I feel in fear that we are moving far right in our politics in this country and definitely in the south of us. Yeah. Um, and I and worry I, because the I heard Elizabeth May speak um, at the spring training camp uh, last year. She it was right. a meeting and she spoke and she said, What's happened is that um, our liberals and conservatives used to be just left and right of center, just, and they were very close to each other. And they believed in the science. Acid rain was solved by a conservative government. But um, the conservatives have gone you know, so far right. And the liberals have maybe gone a little bit too far left in other issues that they're concerned about. But they're not believing the science anymore. Right, right. Science is out the door of belief, and that's the scary part that our scientists are being are the ones who are being um, questioned and put under the bus and they have nothing to lose. They're just doing the science. They're providing us with the material and the information and we need to make good decisions and work on it. Yeah. And I, it's hard to see them being um, not listened to and, and acting on their recommendations. Agree. Agree. Totally. And that is an excellent place to end this conversation and we'll start it up again when we have scotch in hand indeed (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much for your time today gail really appreciate it and that's our episode for today thanks for tuning in thank you for tuning in this episode was produced by blue house energy podcast atlantic and tanya media subscribe and don't miss an episode leave a comment we'd love to hear from you until next time (music) 